been in our season of Advent. In Advent, which means just simply coming. And it's, uh, it's the, the two comings, right? The first Advent, which is Christmas, and the second Advent, which is one of the reasons, even this morning, why we sang the song, Even So Come. That's, yeah, I got it right that time. The first, the first service, I murdered the, like, I was like, I was like, come at some point. It was like, no, even so come. Like, even that's the name. Even so come. I, I love the fact that we, we say even so come this morning because it talks about that. That's the second advent. We're stuck in between these two advents. The celebration of his, of his, of Christmas, of his birth, and the waiting in anticipation of his return. And so we sit between these two advents. And as Christmas approaches and the advent season is we, we recognize the hope, peace, the love, and the joy that comes with the season. And so a couple weeks ago, the first, the first week of Advent, we lit the candle of hope. This idea that hope is the waiting in anticipation and expectation for the promises of God. In other words, God has made promises, and we wait, we wait. We expect that he's going to do it, and we can't wait until he does. And this idea that hope, it tells us that there's a lot of promises about the messiah there's one coming who will redeem you there's one coming who is who is the prince of peace the the everlasting father the great counselor like he's coming and the hope tells us that it was well placed then the other is peace this idea that not just absence of conflict but wholeness and it's interesting because we have this sense that we should be a world of peace like there's world peace is something we want to achieve and even as the world is disjointed world peace you go, the truth is, the world hasn't experienced world peace in, since Genesis chapter 2. And it won't experience world peace again until Jesus returns. But until then, he offers us his peace, his wholeness, his shalom. And this morning, we light the candle of love. This idea that we, we sense that this time of year should be marked with love. And it's interesting with like hope, peace. We hope and peace we get. But love, we want hope and peace. We really, really do. But love, I think, is one of those things we, we, we desperately need. And we're not really sure necessarily what it looks like. But we, we anticipate that this time of year should be about love. There may even be, as, as gifts are being exchanged, as the, there's this idea that, that love should be experienced. And when it's not, we understand that something is really wrong. It's interesting that we with like love, like love is a, is a loaded term. And, and you ask what, you, you go to your job and you ask people, what does love look like? What does love look like? What is love? You're going to get a plethora of answers. You even ask that even this morning in church, you get a plethora of answers. And we're, the interesting, what it tells us is that we're, we all understand it. Because, I mean, we all understand there's this concept. And there would be some like general, like, oh yeah, there's like this general thing that maybe just keeps popping up. But it would just be so convoluted. And it tells me something. It tells me that we're confused about it. I mean, the word that, that, that could be love, it, like, it could be a word that's just used to like heal and help someone feel like they're like they belong. And that they matter. I mean, you know, sometimes I, I, as a pastor, I go into, into hospital rooms and, and places in difficult places. And, and sometimes I'll say, you should go into that difficult place too. And one of the things I'll hear is go, but I don't know what to say. What do I tell them? And I say, really, don't try to fix anything. What they really need to hear from you is just that, that you love them. And you showing up will, will communicate that you love them. 
and then actually tell them the words. And some of you, this is going to be really difficult. You say the words, I love you. Because that's what they want to know. They're going through something very difficult and they want to know that they, they are not rejected and they are not alone. And tell that you love them. So this idea that love can be really like this healing thing, it really can be. But at the same time, the word love can be used as manipulation, right? I mean, you know this. If you love me, you would. I thought you loved me. You said that you loved me, but you wouldn't. And so then love actually can be used not just only to, to heal and to speak and to like you belong, but also can, can be used actually in a weird way as rejection. Oh, you don't love me because if you did, you would do X, Y, and Z. And then, then love becomes this place of manipulation. And so this is actually what tells you that the word has so much power. That the idea has so much power. Because actually the same thing can be used to heal as it can be used to wound. Can you be used to build up and to affirm as it can be used to tear down and to reject. And one of the things about Christianity that we say, because it's what the Bible says, is that actually that God is love. Now, interestingly enough, is that most people believe in this idea of a loving God, especially in Western culture. In Western culture, this idea that God is loving. In fact, actually, sometimes people will use this idea of a loving God to reject the God of the Bible. I can't believe in this God because I believe a loving God would or a loving God would not and then they fill in the blanks. And so because of that, I reject this God. But interestingly enough is that actually Christians are, are, are decently unique to say that we believe that God is love. I mean, you look at the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the Greek gods, the gods that, that typically that are in Asian cultures, they're not loving gods. They are, they are mischievous. They are manipulative. They are, they are sadistic at times. And so even this interesting thing is that the idea that we have that God is a loving God comes from Christianity, but then people use this idea that God is a loving God to reject the Christian God. And, and I think what happens is there's this idea that there's this, this concept and an idea of love that is out there that exists independently of God, and that what God of, of any God, if he's going to be the true God, has to submit himself to that concept of love. And I go, that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that God is love. In other words, love, that God doesn't submit himself to this, this independent idea of love, but that actually love and the idea of love is actually dependent upon God. In other words, love flows from God. Love is not something that flows into him or he submits himself under, right? Actually, love flows from him. Everything he does is a loving action. He is the definer of love. He doesn't do unloving actions. And so sometimes when I read the Bible, even in preparation for sermons, although it may never make the sermon, I think to myself, especially in difficult places, how is this a loving action? We just got done with the book of, uh, with, well, the, the story of Noah. The very difficult places in the story of Noah where he floods the world. How is that, I'm asking myself, how is that a loving action? Because everything that God does is a loving action. And so where we would say that God is the one who defines love, and the more you know about God, the more you know of, of him and his heart, the more you'll, the clearer picture you'll have of, of what love is. 
And, and so we should not be surprised that as we live in a culture that is divorcing itself from God, right? It's like, that's what secular culture is. God is he's part of, he's just not part of the equation. So as we become more confused about who God is, it should not shock you that we are becoming more confused about what love is. Because the two are tied together. Because God is the definer of love. And so, when we come to love, we have to allow God to speak into that. He's the one who defines it. He's the one who expresses it. And it's interesting because you think, uh, you hear people talk about love is like this, like this force. Like, I don't know, I just fell into it. <laughs> Love doesn't, you don't choose love, love chooses you. It's like, if you hear people talk about love, it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It's random. And I go, that's actually not scripture. Scripture is that love, it's not something you fall into, it's something you choose. It was not something that happens just at random or illogical. Because to say that is to say that Christ coming to this world is both random and illogical. You go, no. And so if God is love, what it means is that, our, that, that, that he is the pinnacle of love. It's interesting because you ask sometimes people, what's the pinnacle of love? What's, what's, when we talk about love, love in our culture, what's the pinnacle of love? You want the pinnacle of love? You go watch the Hallmark Channel. They'll give you the pinnacle of love, Right? They found each other. What are the odds? Like, no, they don't like each other. I think in a couple hours, they're going to be in love, right? That's what love is. The pinnacle of love in our culture has become romantic love. And I go, but is that the pinnacle of love? No. Meaning what, what, what Paul says is that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so what, sometimes what we, even in the church, what we think is this idea that, that love becomes this idea that, that it's, it's the, the husband's love for the wife is to be an illustration for how, like, how, how we're to love. And you go, no. What he's saying is actually Christ's love for the church, that's the pinnacle of love. And husbands, the way in which you love your, your wives, that should be a shadow of the greater love. And sometimes in our, in our culture, it's so weird, because even in our Christian culture, we, it becomes the, the husband's love for the wife is the pinnacle of love, and then Christ's love for the church is a shadow, is an illustration of how you're to do that. And I go, that's flip-flop. The, the pinnacle of love is God's love for his people. And so this is what we're going to see this morning in probably the most famous text, now, interestingly enough, most famous text of the Bible, but not the most famous text in reference to love. When you think about love, you go, what's the most famous chapter of love or the most famous part of love? You might say 1 Corinthians 13. Well, love is patient, love is kind. But that's not the pinnacle of love. The pinnacle of love, I think, is found in John 3.16, which is the most popular verse in the Bible. Don't believe me? Watch the NFL today. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the idea that, that God loves the world. And it's interesting is because whether you're Christian or non-Christian, especially if you're secular, you would probably not disagree with that statement that God loves the world. There's something inside of you that says, yeah, that should be true. God, God loves the world. Yes. In fact, actually, you may even condemn things of Christianity because you go, because you believe that God loves the world. But it's interesting because when you, when you read the Old Testament, one of the things you really pull out of the Old Testament is that God loves Israel. God loves the Israelites. God loves his people. He selected his people. It's not because they loved him first. He loved them. He selected them. He picked them. And he says, I love them. And really one of the things about, really even the Israelites thought that made them special is that God loved them. Like the true God loved them. And then we get to the New Testament and what do we find out? That God not only loves Israel. Now there's parts of this in the Old Testament as well. But then really one of the foundations of the New Testament is that God only, does, it's not just Israel that he loves. But he loves the whole world. And in an interesting way in our individualistic culture in the West, what we have done is we've narrowed this. Like God loves the world, God loves the world. But really he loves you. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. Put your name in there. He loves you so much. And although that is true, if it was just you in this world, he would have died for you. But what it's talking about is the enormity of his love. I think if what we do is just focus in on the individualistic, he loves you, he does love you, but then we miss the enormity of his love. He loved the world. Seven billion people loves the world. Now, that's, that's impressive, by the way, in and of itself. Seven billion people. Like, you can't even love the people at your dinner table, let alone, like, the world, right? Like, how are you going to do that? Seven billion people. The world. So, I love you, I love you, I love you seven billion times. How are you going to do that? But it's actually not the size of his love that impresses me the most. When it says that he so loved the world, it's actually the depth of his love. Have you, have you seen the world? Have you read the headlines? Do you know what it's like out there? I mean, you know the stories? And by the way, these are just the stories that your brain can even hold. Like there's more, a lot more stories that are deeper and darker that are happening right now that you don't know anything about. I mean, there's nothing inside of me that, that reflects upon the world and goes, yeah, yeah. Aren't they a loving people? How do, I, how do I get more about that? So it's not just the size, the 7 billion people, but it's actually the depth that God would actually look at the world and think to himself, I love those people. I mean, you think about the way that we are. I love those people. One of the really like, like revolutionary things that Jesus talks about is this idea he wants you to love your, your enemies. He says this in the, in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, love your, en- sorry, love your neighbor but hate your enemies. But I'm going to tell you this. I want you to love your enemies. But what good is it, right, if you just love those who love you? 
And so he says, actually, I want you to love those who reject you. I want, those, I want you to love those who are working to, 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 to your demise, who are trying to tear you down. I want you to, to, I want you to love them in, in, in a way in which you would love your neighbor, in the way that you would love yourself. I want you to love your enemies. This is one of the very revolutionary things of Christianity. And so it's interesting, and the reason why I say this is because right now there is an increasing divide in our country. Have you seen what the other side is doing? I mean, can you believe it? And what's happening right now is this us versus them. And this is happening, by the way, on both sides. And us versus them. And us versus them. And as the divide and as the chasm grows, you know what grows with it? Animosity and bitterness. I can't believe what they're doing. Can you believe what they're doing? Can you believe what they said? Can you believe what they're pushing forward? Can you believe what they're holding back? And as the world and as our divide increases, all that's increasing within the church is animosity and bitterness. I mean, you read the headlines, depending on what what website you get your news from, and what grows with you is what? Animosity, bitterness. Another thing happens, another story comes out. It further solidifies your animosity and it further solidifies your bitterness. But here's the problem. Here's where it challenges me. It challenges you as a Christian. That when God saw the world, he loved it. He loved the world so much. And by the way, it's not like things were better when Jesus was born. It's not like when Jesus was born that, that, that God looked down at the world and go, man, look at these people. I mean, they're loving each other. They're calling out to me. How do I get to be a part of that, like that, that love fest? How do I get to be a part of the love that's happening down that world? I know what we'll do. We'll send Jesus down there to really, to really spice up the party. Right? Is that what, that's not what happened. The world was, was as broken, if not more broken, or more, maybe even more broken now. And possibly, or more broken than, I don't know, but it wasn't good. And so what happens right now is as we see the world and as we know the world, the animosity and the bitterness grows, but here's the problem is that Jesus saw the world and what grew was his brokenness. And so what's happening in you is that you're, 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 you're watching the news, you're seeing what's happening in our world, and what's solidifying is animosity and bitterness and not brokenness. I would submit to you that something's wrong because when God saw the world in its size, in its condition, he loved it. And this is what it says, that for God loved the world For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, so God so loved the world and he loved it so much that he gave. Now sometimes you may hear a sermon on John 3.16 and you go, see, that's the epitome of love. The epitome of love is that he gave. And I go, that's not the epitome of love. Although I believe the epitome of love is in this verse. It's not found in the word gave. 
For I could give you all sorts of things that wouldn't be love, right? Just because I give doesn't mean that it's love. I could give in ways in which actually would, would be to your detriment. And so they, I go, I think the epitome of love is here, but it's not in the word gave. That God still loves the world that he gave. And I think gave is good. It's, it's foundational. But it's the action, not necessarily the motivation. He gave so that you would not perish, but have eternal life. That's what it says. That whoever believes in him, right, and not just believes that he existed, but believes in what he says, that he, says he basically, that he is who he says he is, that he came to do what he said he came to do, and that he accomplished what he, what he said he accomplished on the cross. But that it says that for, for whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I go, that's love. What love says is love says, I don't want you to perish. I want you to experience life. That's what love says. Love is actually always saying, I don't want you to perish. I want you to experience life. It's interesting because in our world right now, love, basically love means acceptance. Love is acceptance. Love is acceptance. Love is acceptance. I go, love, but love, if, if, if what we're going to do is buy into this idea that love is just acceptance, then I go, we're going to end up with a very cheap version of love, which is what's happened. Because acceptance, right? Acceptance, if, if, all, if all love ever is, is I accept you. But the problem is acceptance leaves room for apathy. And right, you know that, that apathy is the opposite of love, not hate. And so, so acceptance is, yeah, sure. You do that, that's fine, that's great. I don't care. Hey, you do you, I do me, you know, that's fine. Whatever you want to do, you can do. I'll do what I want to do, but I still, I still love you. I go, no. What love says is, love says, I don't want you to perish. I want you to have life. In Genesis 1 and 2, God says, and 2 says, Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that you do, you will die. What's he saying? From the very beginning, I don't want you to perish. I want you to have life. Don't lie to your neighbors. Why not? Because I don't want you to perish. I want you to have life. You see, what love says, love says is I don't want, this is why sometimes love can be tough. Because there's people that go down like, I think I'm going to find life this way. As a pastor, I know this, right? I think I'm going to find life this way. And I have to say, you're not going to find life that way. What you're going to find is death and destruction that way. Oh, you don't love me? No, I do love you. And I don't want you to perish. Well, these other people don't seem to care and they love me. I go, no, no, no. They actually, either they don't know that you're going to perish or they don't care you're going to perish. Either way, that's not a loving action. I don't want you to perish. I want you to experience life. That's why when a little child goes to run out into the street, that anyone who would love that child doesn't think to themselves, hey, that's, that's their choice, really, you know. Hey, you do you, do you. you know. <laughs> you know, that's not what you say. 
Hey, not my place to judge. You know, uh, that's not what we say. What do we yell? Stop! We may even get physical. Stop! Why? We don't want them to die. We want them to have life. That's why I'm confounded and I'm just I'm dumbfounded when, when people, when they say like, like, well, I just, you know, I'm just going to, I just want them to be happy. But you know that what they're doing is leading to their destruction, right? Well, yeah, I know that. But I just want them to be happy, so I'm not going to say anything. I go, no. Love says, love not only gives, but love says, I don't want you to perish. I want you to have life. And that's, I think, the epitome of love. And so here we, we see this very popular verse. And it's popular because so much in this verse is, is found in the gospel, which is the gospel is founded here, which is that God, God he, he loves the world so much, even despite its brokenness, its wickedness, that he didn't reject it, but actually came, lived the life down on the cross, loved the world so much that whoever would believe in him, although the world was headed toward perishing, they would not perish, but they'd actually experience eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now this, this verse is popular for another reason. This verse has been really popular recently because this idea that Jesus didn't come to judge. And Jesus didn't come to judge. And they might even say like, John 3.17. John 3.17. Jesus himself says, I didn't come to judge. And the idea is, then who are you to judge? If Jesus himself did not come to judge, then who are you to judge? And crazy, I've heard Christians say, ah, I can't say anything. You know they're perishing, right? Yeah, but you know. I, hey, hey, Jesus didn't come to judge. I didn't come to judge. John 3.17. I've got my Bible. It's good. I go, well, here's the problem, Mr. John 3.17. Is that, is that what that says? Well, I don't know. Jesus is right there. Pretty clear. And here's the, here's the, here's the idea that's at the foundation of this, is that is to judge is to reject, and love is to accept. In other words, that love and judgment are mutually exclusive ideas. They cannot coexist. You cannot both love and judge. Now, here's the reason why I would reject that is because what we see in the scriptures is that we see, once again, God is love. And what do we see God doing? We see him, we see him judging. And so that tells me something, as it should tell you something, is that actually, it's not, not only our love and judgment, not only are they not mutually exclusive, but actually they go together. They have to go together. And sometimes when people use this verse, they'll say, yeah, but John 3.17 says, Jesus says that he didn't come to judge as if Jesus is this like lackadaisical, you know, guy about, about sin. Like, hey, what are you doing over there? Oh, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, yeah, are you, you're robbing people? Hey, yeah, it's fine. You know, that's, that's their business, not mine. You know, or, or what, what's this? You know, uh, sexual immorality? Hey, that's good. So is that, is that another man's wife? Hey, no problem. You know, as, as if that's his addressing of sin, they, they'll say this. And I go, but is that the attitude that we get of God? Because if that's Jesus' attitude, then I'll, I'll challenge you with this. Just read, just read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Because I'll tell you this right now, Jesus seems to say a lot of really judgy things. He says, don't do this, do this. 
you've heard this be said. I'm actually telling you this. It's much, it's much more higher than what you thought before. He calls people. He says, and at the end he goes, if you don't listen to what I said, so at the end of the whole thing, spoiler alert, he says, if you do what I taught you to do, you're like a wise man. If you don't do what I told you to do, you're a fool. That sounds judgy. It's not like he got to Matthew 7. It's like, and if you do what I said to do, and if you don't say that, if you don't do what I said to do, eh, it doesn't matter. He says, no, wise fool. So I would say, well, other places he actually seems to say things that make a really judgment statements, but you actually don't even need to leave John 3.17 in order to see this. Because John 3.17 says, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. Now people stop there, but it actually says, but in order that he might, the world might be saved through him. So then I go, but if, if Jesus didn't come to condemn, or if Jesus never came to judge, then what's the world being saved from? You see, saving implies some sort of peril danger and so even in this statement that he didn't come to judge he came to save and people want to quote like everyone's like, like eh, who am i to judge jesus didn't come to judge he just came to save then i go to save from what because if there's no moral judgment made in the statement then to save from what well he tells us from perishing into life that's what john three sixteen is and so We see this, and the last is that we know that Jesus is the judge. It tells us that in John 5, 22, we see this in Revelation. We see that Jesus is the judge. And so what's he saying here? He's saying what he's saying here is that he didn't come to judge. And by the way, just this works in our own legal system. Every time a judge does something, it isn't necessarily a judgment. The judge does other things than judge. And what he's saying here is that the world was already condemned. The world was already condemned and the world didn't need further condemnation. What the world needed was a savior. The world was already perishing. The world was not on the path of life. The world was on the path of perishing. And the world was on the path of perishing and it doesn't need more condemnation. What the world needs is to be saved from that condemnation that it already has. And this is actually what he says in in, in, in verse 18. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That those who believe in Jesus are not condemned. Those who believe in Jesus, sorry, who don't believe in Jesus, are condemned. And this is the place where people go, man, Christians, you guys are so narrow-minded. You're so... They're like, they're, 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 you're so narrow-minded. You, you're so exclusive in your thinking. And you go, because it says, like, oh, if you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you're condemned. And you go, yeah, well, first of all, it's not Christianity or Christians necessarily that are, that are narrow-minded in that. I would say that's what the Bible says. And I think that that's a clear teaching of the Bible. But really, let me tell you what it's saying. What he's saying is that the world is already condemned. That Jesus then came to take on that condemnation. 
And that if you reject Jesus, then he won't take on that condemnation. And then therefore, the condemnation remains on you. So it's not like, in other words, it's not like if you go, Jesus, I reject you. And then Jesus says, oh, you reject me? You reject me, huh? Huh? Okay, then condemnation for you now. It's not, that's not what it is. You are already condemned. That's what it says. The world was already condemned. All of it. You're like, well, really, maybe like the whole world, but like me, I mean, I'm a little bit better than the rest of the world. No, you're not. The whole world was condemned. And that for those that are in Christ, what Jesus says, this is the promise, is that I will take on that condemnation for you. I reject you, Jesus. Okay, you get to do that. But the condemnation doesn't go away. It's still on you. And this is what Jesus is saying here. It's interesting because it's I, just with the exclusive thing is that people are like, wow, you know, there's like, I think all roads lead to God. I think all roads lead to God and to heaven. And I go, I think that, that's problematic. You Christians who say there's only one way to God, that is arrogance. And I go, well, okay. I think it's also arrogant to say that there's multiple ways. And the reason why I would say that is because the fact that there's even one way, a way, to be made right with God is by the grace of God. And to say that there are, to say that like, I am so awesome. I mean, God's up in heaven or gods are up in heaven and they're looking down on me or he's looking down on me and thinking, he is so amazing. I mean, this Josh guy, we have got to get him up here. Like, we've got to find a way. We're going to give him all the ways possible so that he really can't mess this one up. And that God has to work so hard to get me up there because he wants me up there. That's borderline entitlement and arrogance. That God owes me multiple ways. And so whether it is there's there's an arrogance that there's only one way, I'd go, I, I disagree with that. But just so you know, there's an arrogance in the other way too that says that there's multiple ways. Because God's got to work so hard. So he says, the world's condemned. Those who believe in me, I take on their condemnation those who reject me, the condemnation still stays on them. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. There it is, which is always funny with 17. He didn't come to judge in verse 19. Well, here's the judgment. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What's the judgment? People are mean to each other? No. That's part of it. That's not, the multiple, that's, that's not ultimately the problem. What's the problem? What's the judgment? People were greedy? No. Ultimately, no. What's the judgment? People are selfish? What's the judgment? The judgment is that people love the darkness more than they love the light. The great, I call this the great cosmic love triangle. God loves the world. God, God loves the world. The world loves the darkness. God hates the darkness. You see the great cosmic love triangle? God loves the world. The world loves the darkness. God hates the darkness. 
And this is true, by the way, of the world, and this is true of, of you, of me. People go, I, I just need to be more giving. Okay, I need to love God more. Like, oh, that's good. You need to love God more too. But here's the problem. Here's, the, here's what's coming between the, 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 the love of you and the love of God. The, the, what's coming between the, you and the love of God is actually what it tells us here in John, is that you actually love the darkness more than you love the light. And until you start loving the light more than you love the darkness, you're going to continue to find yourself in the same place. You could read the Bible more. You could go to church more. You could worship more. You could do all those things more. But unless you start to love the light more than you love the darkness, nothing is going to change. And I talk with people. They go, I don't love the darkness, Josh. I love God. And I go, if you don't love the darkness and you love God, then why does the darkness keep calling you? Why does the darkness keep coming after you? Why do you beckon to it? Why does the darkness own you? Why have you sacrificed everything for the darkness? Maybe you love the darkness more than you know. And this is what he says. This is the issue. This is the problem. You love your darkness more than you love me. You see, there's lots of love to go around. And the Bible would agree with that. And at this time of year, we think love goes up. And you go, yes, love goes up. But this God loves us. We love the darkness. And this is the beautiful thing about Christmas is that the, the light stepped down into the darkness. And that's what we see in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that is the works have been carried out in God. So let me read that again. For everyone who does wicked hates things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in god and so he's like this is why you this is why you avoid the light the light has stepped into the world and this is why people have avoided the light because they were afraid that the light is going to expose the darkness. This is, by the way, why people, when, they, when they're caught in darkness, this is why they don't go to church. I've talked with people. They go, I don't read. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm like, well, you should read the Bible more. Like, I'm not reading the Bible right now. Nope. Nope. I go, why? Because I know what God's going to say. Go, yeah. Yeah, you know what he's going to say. And, and what he's going to do is he's going to shine his light into your dark places. And you don't want that. They go, mm-mm. I go, well, at least you're honest. And this is what it says. The reason why you're avoiding the light is because you're afraid that the light is going to expose your darkness. Why? Because that's what light does. And so we remain in our dark places. We we remain in our dark places, the dark places in our rooms, the dark places in our relationships, the dark places in our minds. In the darkness of the night, we remain in the darkness. Why? Because we love it more than we love the light. 
the great cosmic love triangle. And so, the truth is that God is the light and he exposes us. I think what we're afraid of at the end of the day is that was, we're exposed as the things in your darkness come to light, as you're exposed, what you're afraid of is that people will run and scatter, right? But do you see what the scripture is saying? That when, when the light comes on, we're the ones that run and scatter. Actually, it's a beautiful thing that we're afraid that if, if, if we were exposed, right? If we were exposed, if our darkness came to light, that people would run and scatter. But what it says here is that the light has come and then we're the ones who run and scatter. Why? Because we want to find the darkness again. I think one of the most beautiful things in the world is to be known and loved. Is you know me and you love me. You see my darkness and as the darkness comes to light, you see that. You know me and you did not scatter. The beautiful thing about Christmas is that that is exactly the story of Jesus. He saw you in your darkness. He sees you in your darkness. And he did not scatter, but he stepped into that darkness. That's the story. The most beautiful thing, I think, is to be fully known and fully loved. Most people think, I think, I just want to be loved. I just want to be loved. I just want to be loved. We all have this idea of love, but we go, actually what we want is to be known in the light and loved. Because if all we ever do is say, I just want to be loved. I just want to be loved. That's, the, that's at the core of all humanity. We just want to be loved. They go, no. I mean, that's part of it, yes. But we want to be known and loved. Because here's the problem. If all we are is ever, is just, we're just loved. Like, I love you, I love you, I love you. But we are not known then the hidden places in our lives, when people go to love us, what we think to them is like, you love me, sure, you say that true, okay. But the problem is, if you know this to be true about me, would you feel the same way? What would you think about if you knew what I did last night? What would you think about me if you knew what I said to this one person? What would you think about me if you saw my finances? If you saw, if you saw the way I handle myself at my job? If you saw how I treat my children? What would you think of me then? If you knew me, would you still love me? And a lot of you, even in like, relationships, marriages, friendships, you think this. You love me, but you love what I've allowed you to see. What would you think about me if you saw me for who I was? And the beautiful thing about the gospel, about Christmas, about this, is that God, knowing everything, says, I do not run away. I step into, and you're the one who runs away. 
because you're afraid. And what you're afraid of is you're afraid of the, the shame and the judgment that comes with the exposure. I mean, think about this, right? I mean, think about any sort of news story. You could probably log on to your, your favorite news source after this, and it would be like, you'll never believe what happened. Guess what just came to light? And, and, and you read the story, and this just came to light, and this person was just exposed, this thing was just exposed, and now we know the truth, and you read an article of shame, 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 judgment, 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 shame, shame, with a little bit more of judgment. And then we read that story and go, see, this is why I don't want it to come to the light. Because this is what happens. Shame and judgment, when it all comes to the light, shame and judgment follow. But this is what he says. What Jesus says is he says, I'm going to expose you. What's going to come with that is is the shame and is the judgment. But here's the beautiful thing. I will bear both the judgment and the shame for you. I will expose you. Because I want you to experience life and not to perish. And with that's going to come some shame and judgment, some condemnation. And with that, I will bear those for you. It's the beautiful thing of the gospel. I think one of the great tensions right now between Christianity, there's lots of them, one of them is this idea of acceptance. At the core of Christianity one of our beliefs is that you are not acceptable as you are. Out of Christ, outside of Christ, you are not acceptable as you are. Where the, the culture would dig in, secularism would dig in its heels and say, that is not true. You are acceptable just as you are. You don't have to change. Nobody can change you. And people have to accept you just the way that you are. If they can't deal with that, then, then they're no friend of yours. And so here Christianity says, you're not acceptable as you are. Something has to change. And our culture says, no, no, that's not true. You're acceptable just as you are. Nothing has to change. But here's the thing for you. You could get the other 7 billion people in this world to believe that you're acceptable just as you are. Right? I mean, you could convince me, you could convince everybody else in this room, you could go out and go on a campaign and hire a public image consultant and you could get the whole world to believe that you personally are just as acceptable as you are, but the person you probably wouldn't be able to fool is yourself. But here's the big problem is that we don't feel acceptable. And we're afraid that's true. And when somebody else says it, we go, uh-oh. One group says, you're not acceptable as you are. The other group says, you're acceptable just the way you are. And I think we want the second one, we want it to be true, but we have this sinking feeling that the first is true. But Jesus says, What the word says is that God loved the world in its brokenness 
so much, so much, that he gave his son so that it would not perish, but that it would have life. And whoever believes in him will not experience condemnation. You're not acceptable as you are. And yet, that's the whole beauty. You are not acceptable as you are. And yet, despite all of that, God loved you and the world so much that he came to take on that condemnation, to take that judgment, and to take that shame so that you would be made acceptable. You go, that's love. That's why it's the pinnacle of love. It's a love that at all cost moved us from perishing to life. From condemnation to redemption. From guilty to justified. And it's that same love that we celebrate for Christmas. God's calling you out of the darkness and into the light. He will bear the guilt. He will bear the shame. He'll bear the, judge, bear the judgment so that you may experience the life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love as an expression. Father, we thank you that you sent your son as an expression It's love that has action. It's love that gave, but it's a love that moved us from perishing to life. And may I pray that that be true for us. I pray that that as 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 we experience the pinnacle of love, that as we, even as you expose the places of our lives, as you move us from the darkness into the light, as the light steps in, We pray that you would heal us. We pray that your love would heal us. We pray that your love would cover us. We pray that your love would take the judgment. We pray that your love would take the shame. We pray that your love would restore us. We pray that your love would redeem us. And that your love would reconcile us. Jesus, we thank you that it's by your love that we are made acceptable. We thank you for taking the condemnation and the guilt. We thank you for taking the shame and the embarrassment. We pray that as you love us in that same way that we would love others. May that be true of us, not just this season, but this year. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.